Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. Aussie Plummer, we've been reading with great interest your article entitled Maths, Human Nature and Investment Banking. Are we economists or human beings? Setting the scene for what has now become mainstream behavioural finance. So perhaps we could start by going back to the very beginning of stock analysis and the people that were trying to forecast trends. And you say in your article that the rocket scientists that were thrown out of work when the Cold War ended turned their attention to more lucrative careers in finance. Is that where stock analysis really began? It started a little bit before that point. It started with the Markowitz papers in the 1950s um, with Sharp and the capital asset pricing model and certain econometric models that were being used to make predictions about risk and return in markets based on the statistics and data we had. I think what happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall is we were in we had two things happening at once. We had a massive increase in the processing power of technology and in the memory capacity of technology uh, combined with a large number of people who were very familiar with that technology who suddenly were looking for something else to do and some of the investment banks in particular starting off in Wall Street realized there was potential to combine the two uh, with the data that we now had on markets. Data was much more freely available and try and create mathematically based econometric models that would have some predictive quality as to how markets would go based on what had happened in the past, which was now exceedingly well documented. You used to have the daily close coming out of a newspaper. Now you have the price every minute coming off a memory bank. And would it be fair to say that these mathematical geniuses, these rocket scientists, got it right for a period of time? They got the modelling of the data that they had correct, essentially. There were some instances where you could argue quite strongly that the data sets they were using were too short term. So if you model based on, say, two, three years of data, you only have to be a few years away from a crisis for the crisis to disappear from the data. And suddenly you're looking at much lower standard deviations, much lower implicit risk, and that changes the nature of your models. But the models worked quite well. For instance, 2003 through to, say, 2006, the models were doing the job they were set out to do. But when markets changed, the models weren't entirely ready for those changes. And then the prices and the predictions they were making were based on data that was now being challenged by the events that were being seen in the markets themselves. And that's when the models tend to fall over. And what were the sort of examples of models collapsing? And were there specific instances and events that led people to become sceptical of their value? A huge amount, if we talk about the crisis of a little over 10 years ago, a huge amount of that came out of the mortgage-backed securities market and the securitization process. The whole mathematical 
base behind that was entirely sound so long as you had good credit risk. At some point, markets ran out of good credit risk and started moving down towards higher risk lending. But the belief was that through the magic of diversification, we could maintain the credit quality overall, even whilst increasing the risk. And one of the things that James Montier, a practitioner of behavioral finance that I read a lot of, he says that risk is the poorestly understood thing in the financial world, because it doesn't just include statistical measures of what has happened. It includes something called uncertainty about the future. And that one doesn't fit in an equation very well at all. And so when the credibility of these models became eroded, despite the huge mathematical processing power that was available, how did we then transition to a more sociological view of markets? I think there is a point where the markets themselves have to consider, the practitioners in the markets have to consider the ethical dimensions of the lending they are doing. What happened in 2000, the mid-2000s and on, was that anybody could borrow anything for as long as they wished, and at some point somebody would put an interest rate on it later and we'd see what would happen. The due diligence that banks used to have to make sure they were only lending to people who could afford to borrow went out the window. And that is the sociological element that needs to be retained and invigorated, that banks have a social and ethical responsibility to make sure that they only lend to people who have a reasonable hope of paying that money back, rather than lending to people who ultimately they are going to force into bankruptcy, which does nobody any good at all. So we've read in your article that there are a number of biases. I think you mentioned 13, but say there are many more. Biases from which we as human beings rather than economists suffer. How well established is this academic research now? I took probably the, the, if it was 13, it was 13, the number that I put down were ones that people don't argue much about. Um, one text I have that I will talk about 115 different biases, sub-biases, and so forth. Um, the problem is with all of these, you can talk about them, but you can't easily measure them because they are behavioral. And the extent to which you are biased is dependent on a huge number of variables, many of which are emotional, are affected by all sorts of different things. So the three basic divisions of belief biases, information processing problems, and emotional biases are, I don't think, argued by very many people. Some of the subsets seem a little bit niche and not everybody would people want to you know, write their doctorate to get something out of this that behavioral elements are fundamentally important to markets is now, I believe, a mainstream accepted fact. Exactly what we do about that is, I think, very much up for grabs at the moment. So does this change the way investment banks work now they're less reliant on data and the way they advise clients is more nuanced? What I've actually seen is almost two-pronged. You have a significantly greater 
focus on data actually in investment banks. If you want to get a high paying job in an investment bank these days, forget the MBA, become a data scientist or a sophisticated coder, artificial intelligence, these sorts of things. So there's actually been an increased focus on data, though some institutions are trying to quantify behavioral data. Then on the other side, there is an acknowledgement that the behavioral side of markets is an increasingly important factor but, as I say, the quantification of that in any mathematical manner is extremely challenging. So this isn't necessarily insurance against similar crashes in the future, I suppose. I think we will get an awful lot better at it. But I don't think we're ever going to avoid the things that happen as a result of a major event, a major crisis falling out of the European Union without any certainty of what's coming next is off the scale of any previous data. Things, big events like that don't fit into any previous model. And in the end, when the wheel falls off completely, everybody panics and everybody dumps and any historical behavior, you've then got to go back to 2008, nine to have data that reflects what's going to happen. Um, if you live your entire life with the data from 2008-9, you'd never do anything because the risk is too great. I think human nature is one of bubble and bust, mania and crisis. Um, financial markets always have worked in that way. And I think they all will to a greater or lesser extent. Um, the four most expensive words in the English language are this time it's different. Indeed. And I was very intrigued to say that you mentioned in your article Ben Graham and his investment strategy, if you can call it that. And obviously, he was then a mentor to Warren Buffett. Would they recognize behavioral science? I, I, think, I think Warren Buffett probably does, whether he does explicitly, he does implicitly. After all, he called the dot-com bubble in 99 saying, I don't, he didn't say anything about it apart from saying, I don't get it, so I'm out which is equivalent to say we want a market mania, which is a behavioral thing. He didn't call it by that name, but I think he would recognize that bubbles and busts are a fact of history, a fact of life, and that especially when you get new technology, you tend to get people who are overeager on it and make predictions about it that may or may not become true in the end. And does the research that you and others have done in this area influence what you teach and how you teach it? I tend to, because my main teaching is in the area of finance, um, I will always say that we have the maths and we have the markets. And I will always try and instill in students an awareness of the unpredictable behavior nature. Um, and just to say that, just be careful that you know that the model is not the reality. Models are good as long as you appreciate that the model isn't going to actually accurately make the predictions. And then as long as you're saying not this is what's going to happen, but you're saying our model suggests, then you're keeping in mind that there are limitations to the econometrics. And then we have to take consideration of how investors behave. And of course, nowadays with pension plans and significant financial pressures on people to invest wisely, 
which didn't exist to the same extent 30 or 40 years ago, is there a way that this behavioral science can help ensure people against risk in a way that financial models on their own didn't beforehand? I think it, as if you are aware of where we get it wrong, you have a better chance of avoiding the pitfalls. So an awareness that people tend to fall into errors of behavioral um, nature means that you have a little less faith in the models. And one of the things that we've seen, which I think is a maybe not a direct but an indirect consequence of this, is a, a large increase in index-based investing, exchange-traded funds, and these things where we are just saying, okay, we'll take the market or a sector of the market as a whole and not try and second-guess things. And that has become significantly more important as an investment vehicle. And I think that's part of people saying, well, maybe we go away from some of the models that make predictions about individual correlations, individual stocks and so forth, and just buy the market and be done with it. And I think that's a probably indirect consequence. When you read about the speed of trading nowadays, you know the fact that decisions are made in split seconds. Is it feasible that those decisions are made with any kind of bias and not just instinct? A huge number of those decisions are taken by machines based on mathematical algorithms. Um, and when they work, they work well. By some measure, around 70% of stock trades in the West are done by computers, not by humans. Whether the computer makes the decision or a human puts in a limit is a different issue. Um, however, you still are going to have, with all of that, a because a stock is going up and has momentum doesn't mean it's worth it. And it follows through on the mathematical model, and then perhaps it reaches a level that is undefensible on economic fundamentals, and when enough people notice, then the sky falls in. So, no, there is no real emotional amount with going with a lot of that, but when you are basing a model, for instance, on momentum, which a number of models have a significant input on that, there comes a point where it goes beyond what is reasonable, and at some point then, somebody's going to come in and short it, and we see what happens next. One of the interesting things about the research on behavioural finance is how different nationalities and people from different ethnic backgrounds respond to these biases. Do you think that leads to variations in the way that stock markets perform according to where they're based geographically? Or do you think this is just human nature, irrespective of whether we are in New York or Kuala Lumpur? That is an extremely interesting question. There has been a certain amount of research done on that, not a lot that I've seen, um, where they have put, for instance, male and female in different groups in artificial markets. And in the West, the females didn't form bubbles, the males did. In China, the females formed bubbles as well. Um, when you have a relatively closed market like China, then you may find there are much more strong national characteristics to it, though I haven't seen any major research that suggests that directly. With most other open markets, they're open to capital from the world over. And so the behavior is going to be a more universal, if you like, investment banker, asset management, Wall Street, City of London, Hong Kong behavior. 
um, than being solely predicted by national characteristics. That having been said, different national characteristics have different approaches. And some national characteristics shy away from direct investment in these things at all because it's not in the culture in the same way that you have the red in tooth and claw of US capitalism. And has any of your research influenced the way in which you manage your own portfolio? I'm much more inclined towards index um, and things that are very a value-based attributation where you say, okay, this is just oversold, it's going to take a long time, be patient, or be more inclined to go with the actual index itself. And in terms of people looking for careers in trading and other areas of investment banking, we're told now more than ever that they're looking for people with backgrounds in data science, people that can manage and interpret large amounts of information. Do you think this means we'll be going back to the more mathematical route? There'll be more reliance in future on these models? And this will have just been a passing fad driven by a couple of Harvard professors? I don't think it's going to be a passing fad. I think you're going to end up with, in, in a lot of areas, the combination of man and machine, which in many areas has been proved to be far more effective than machines only or humans only. Um, you always had the traders in city foreign exchange route, uh, dealing rooms and everything who had a feel for where the market's going. And that's a totally non-scientific thing, having an idea of where the market's going. But when you combine your sentiment, your feel for a market with the analytical models you've got, then you've got a much higher chance of actually being successful if you combine man and machine than if you leave it to be one or the other. Ozzy, thank you so much for talking through your article with us and explaining the history and how behaviours and biases have played such an important part in markets all around the world. If you want to find out more about this fascinating topic, then read Ozzy's article online on our website. And of course, there are lots of books available that talk about this interesting topic too. So Ozzy, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about our qualifications and our work at www.libf.ac.uk. If you want to get involved, contact us at podcast at